rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. My name is Bob Hutchins, and today I've got a very special guest. I've been looking forward to this podcast and this interview for quite a while. Sitting across the table from me is Micah Redding. Micah is living here in Nashville, Tennessee, and he is the executive director of the Christian Transhumanist Association. Micah is an international speaker, and he's spoken on the topics of artificial intelligence, transhumanism, future of humanity. He's been featured on BBC World Radio, on Wired, TEDx, uh, Christianity Today, Huffington Post, Daily Beast, on and on it goes. He also hosts the Christian Transhumanist Podcast, where he interviews thinkers on religion and technology. He's interviewed people like Kevin Kelly, N.T. Wright, Aubrey de Grey, and human GMO Liz Parrish, and organized the first Christian transhumanist conference, bringing together people from all around the world. Micah, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thanks. Great to be here. So tell me, before we go any further, I know I'm hearing people's uh, wheels spinning in their brain, <laughs> and they're going, what the heck is a Christian transhumanism? Yeah. A Christian transhumanist, yeah. should I say. Um, so before we dive too deep into that, yeah. um, let's first create or define, if you would, um, a framework for what we want to talk about today. And I think what's important in that is first to define what is transhumanism. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you, you've highlighted the the most difficult, weird word in that, that uh, which is exactly correct. So transhumanism is a movement um, to use science and technology to transform the human condition. Mm. And it typically is kind of located in a lot of Silicon Valley discussions. Um, it uh, typically involves like uh, some of the things you mentioned, artificial intelligence, robotics, genetic editing, things like that. And a lot of the questions are, what, what would it look like to use science and technology in this way? How should we think about using science and technology mm. in this way? And that's kind of where I get into the conversation. Okay. And I'm assuming the Christian part of transhumanism is and correct me if I'm wrong, is a more traditional and or um, biblical or Christ-centered um, worldview or framework to look at those um, things like artificial intelligence and technology and um, biology and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, a little bit of an expanded definition would be of transhumanism would be the ethical use of science and technology mm. to transform the human condition. And the next question we ask is like, well, what ethics? What you know? What counts as ethical? And and within the transhumanist conversation in general, people offer all kinds of different answers. So we're trying to offer an answer that comes from the idea of discipleship of Christ. Mm. What would that look like playing into these conversations? That's great. That's great. This has been a special interest of mine, as you know, for years. And um, so before we, we, we go into those questions and open up some, can of, some cans of worms and all those good things, um, talk to me about y who is Micah Redding? Mm. We kind of jokingly talked 
before we started this podcast, you don't wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to be a Christian transhumanist. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's the road or the journey yeah. that got you to where you are today? Yeah. Like, talk to me about like your early life, your childhood, growing up, all that good stuff. Yeah. So um, I'm, a, I'm a preacher's kid, so I grew up in the Churches of Christ, which is a uh, a pretty kind of small conservative fundamentalist uh, fellowship, um, a lot in the rural South. Uh, but so I, we grew up kind of uh, going from church to church all, all over the country. And um, so we were in tiny churches in the Seattle area where it's really sparse and in, you know, like other churches kind of in, in, um, Ohio and Oklahoma and West Virginia and all these different places. And, um, and so I, I grew up with that and, you know, the big thing that we were taught was to, uh, to study really mm. to study for ourselves. And, you know, and I knew growing up that my parents had done this, had taken this seriously, that they had, uh, that my grandparents had done this, that my Sunday school teachers were all saying this and, um, and they had all come to slightly different Conclusions, hmm. and I saw moving from place to place across the country that every little church we were in had a slightly different take on the world, a slightly different take on what you know the Bible was actually saying and calling us to. And so I took it seriously that I had to do this for myself, hmm. that I really had to kind of study for myself. And so from a young age, I was, uh, you know, I was studying and asking all these questions and. Um, and you know the the assumption that most of my Sunday school teachers had was like if you study you're going to come to the same conclusions we've all come to you know like sure. it's it's going to be uh, the theory sometimes is that if you dropped a Bible uh, you know out of an airplane into a you know uh, the middle of a wilderness and somebody picked it up they would create something that looked just like <laughs> the rural so- Southern churches of Christ um, and so but but so I I was studying all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, and um, what that led me to was when I was 12, I was starting to wonder, am I going to become an atheist? Hmm. Because um, everybody who's reading the kinds of stuff I do becomes an atheist. And what kind of stuff were you reading? Well, I was reading like Bertrand Russell, mm. like these kind of... At 12 years old? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. These, these kind of classic, like atheist thinkers and and I was also reading science fiction which a lot of which like was really implicitly atheistic um really critical of of religion and you know and I was grappling at the same time I was trying to understand uh, the bible and trying to understand theology and trying to understand physics and and all this kind of stuff um and it there were a lot of questions, you know, and a lot of uh, a lot of seemingly conflicting ideas that were coming out of that, um, and and so I never I never became an atheist, and I never completely um, lost touch with it. But what it it kicked off was just a series of like really deep rethinkings mm. and reconstructions of my own understanding of faith and and reality and. And all this kind of stuff. Um, so, so how old were you when that you were going through that? Um, well, I think yeah, I think my first real big transition happened right around um, eleven or twelve uh, when I was kind of building up this kind of idea of how you know how I thought we were supposed to live and all this, and then one preacher 
um, I was arguing with actually took me seriously and like challenged a few questions. And all of a sudden my, my whole world collapsed, you know, it all came down like a house of cards. And so then I started, um, what, what kind of came out of that for me was this idea that Christianity was calling us into life and freedom and mm-hmm. transformation. And, uh, and so that kind of, that process unfolded, um, up till I was, you know, about 15 maybe. Um, and what did that look like? Mm-hmm. So for instance, you're the son of a preacher's kid mm-hmm. and you're reading at 12 years old, reading these famous atheists mm-hmm. and challenging, you know, the worldview and, and construct of, of a very fundamentalist yeah. type, type environment. What did that look like for you yeah. on a daily basis or in your home? Um, well, uh, it, there were, there's a lot of different dimensions of it. Part of it is, you know, my, my family, um, was very much, you know, kind of encouraging and teaching us to challenge and question things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we were always kind of arguing about philosophy and, and the Bible and, and things like that. Um, at the same time, you know, there was a lot of stuff that everybody around me, believed and believed was essential that, um, I was really, you know, in my kind of studies and research was really kind of coming apart, you know, Mm. and, um, everything from, you know, human origins to like all this kind of stuff. Like, uh, I was questioning in a way that people around me were not questioning. And especially at a young age that you realize that's very rare. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was definitely kind of a eccentric kid. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was you know a lot of the time it was both liberating and incredibly stressful. Sure, uh, yeah, sure. So you know this is your early pubescent and teen and preteen, and then what what did high school and college look like for you? Well, so um, yeah, there were a couple of different things that kind of unfolded for me. One of which is, you know, by the time I was uh, entering college, I was really, um, you know, in a very dramatically different place than than most of the people that I grew mm. up around. Uh, but I, I ended up going to uh, Freed Hardeman University, which is, most people would say, is the most conservative Church of Christ school that there is. Now, was that your choice? Um, well, I was looking at a couple of different ones. Nobody made me go to anything in particular. Uh, but just scholarship-wise, it worked out. It made a lot of sense if I was going to go to a Church of Christ a school. Pastor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I was going to go to a Church of Christ school, uh, then here's here's the set of one, you know ones that make sense. And this one was like, you know, here's your scholarships. Let's do this. And uh, so, and it turns out, I mean, it's the school that my parents went to, my grandparents went to, my <laughs> great grandparents went to. So I'm a fourth generation graduate of this school. Um, I'm just like everyone before me met my wife there, um, and so in in a way, it's very consistent. Hmm. And at the same time, I, um, by the time I showed up there, I was wildly like out of my context, right? Like this was dramatically not the setting that kind of, um, you know, went with where, where I was thinking and, and going. Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, yeah, I was kind of, a, a a misfit in that environment from the very beginning. And so did you go all the way through there? I did. Yeah. Um, and so w- one of the things that's, you know, a lot of my friends who went to school there, um, 
and graduated and kind of went out into the world, later had faith deconstruction, you know, where something just kind of hit them and it all fell apart, mm. right? This bubble right. kind of world that we were living in didn't make sense anymore. But you were going into it with already have dealt with that several years prior. Yeah, it already didn't make sense to mm. me. Um, and so it, it was a very different experience, you know, and I was having grown up in this environment where we challenged and rethought beliefs all the time, I kind of assumed I could go into this school and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case. <laughs> People were not prepared to you know, challenge their most deeply held beliefs just kind of at a moment's notice the way I uh, was interested in doing. So, so, what, so what did you end up getting your degree in? Uh, computer science. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of your career track after mm-hmm. that. So... You met your wife. Were you married in college or shortly after? Um, so actually, a couple of years after. So I graduated okay. in uh, 03, and we um, and I kind of was around the different places in the country when I when I graduated. My family was out on the West Coast, so I, I was out there for a little while, uh, and then moved to Nashville. And so um, my wife and I were dating long distance during mm. this, and then we got married uh, 2007. So three years later. Uh, but we were dating this whole time. Um, Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you entered into the computer programming world. That that's been your career. Um, tell me what led up to the Christian Transhumanist Association. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that I started really that kind of like uh, catalyzed things for me as a young teenager was this discovery that. Um, Historic Christianity was um, was a bit different than what I had been raised in, and so through through people like C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright and G.K. Chesterton, people like that, who were kind of connected uh, largely to an Anglican tradition, but then were connected through that to maybe you know um, more th- things from the Orthodox streams of thought or Catholic streams of thought. I, I came to the realization that historic Christianity had been really focused mm-hmm. on the the body mm-hmm. and the material world, mm-hmm. and the kind of assumption that that the background assumption of that I had been raised in, where it, no one ever challenged this or thought about it, but it was just that well, the material world is just really, really temporary. It's it's on its way out. Our bodies are really, really temporary. They're on their way out. None of this matters. All we're trying to do is to kind of bide our time until we can get to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized through some of these, you know, um, through some of these figures, that this was not what Christianity right. had always been about. I had always said, and that in fact, like historic Christianity had been built on this idea that the created order was good. And that, you know, in, in things like the resurrection of Christ, what we were seeing was that God was committing himself to creation and to the transformation mm-hmm. of creation. And so that was really a big, important thing for me. And it changed how I thought about life. It changed how I thought about the world. It changed how I thought about my religion. And it, it really empowered me because all of a sudden everything that I was doing, whether it was in computers or anything else, could be a part of this unfolding of the religious trajectory, you know, religious meaning and what we were doing in the world as as human beings and as spiritual people. And um, 
around the same time I was really kind of coming alive through through a lot of those ideas, um, I was in a small town in Oklahoma, uh, about 1,500 people, and in the middle of nowhere, and and um, and you know there was nobody around who was really having these kinds of big conversations, and who really wanted. Now at this to. time, are you still in the Church of Christ? Yes, okay. uh, yeah. So we're uh, my dad's preaching at a, right. a small church there. Um, I'm having all these radical ideas, you know, my, um, and, uh, and, you know, so what, I, what happens is this is the, this is the late nineties. And I start, um, finding these communities online of like all these, you know, really interesting and kind of crazy different subcultures. And one of them that I stumbled into was the transhumanist. Hmm. Um, and so secular transhumanists were having all these very interesting discussions at this time about like what we could do with enough computing power, enough gene editing, all the, you know, like all these things. And they were speculating about things that like over the next decade, I would start to see kind of playing out in, um, you know, just current events in, in many ways. But what I immediately recognized was that for many of these people, they were trying to do, um, in a secular context, what, what I had experienced through in a religious context, like in finding these ideas about the goodness of material reality, Mm. the goodness of our bodies and the need to transform them instead of abandon them. Um, I had stumbled onto a set of empowering ideas. Many of these people were leaving behind Hmm. a bad religious experience and were trying to hold on to some vision of transformation and transcendence that could still make sense in a secular world. Um, And as soon as I, so I I recognized this sameness there. Hmm. Um, But many of them said to me, uh, well, you can't be part of this because we know what we know what you're about. We know you're a Christian, and we know that you're about escapism. We know that you're about not doing good in the world. You just want to get out of here. You don't want you know you don't care about any of this stuff. And I said, no, no, no. This is you know. I, here's what my faith is about. Here's what my Christianity is about. Here's what you know. And the, and they just most of them couldn't believe it because they had had real experiences right. in real churches and. They had seen what that looked like for so many people. Mm, that's interesting. So, so you're walking this path, and 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 I I resonate with so much of what you're saying. It's been my own journey. I I, I came to it later in my life, but um, this whole idea of um, a renewal of all things, you know, there's some theologians that are trying to push this idea of a panentheism. Mm-hmm. Not pantheism, but panentheism, meaning mm-hmm. that God is in all things, but simultaneously transcends all mm-hmm. things, um, which is a very old Christian Orthodox belief mm-hmm. um, that there is no place that the presence of Christ that does not exist. So mm-hmm. therefore, he is pushing all things forward into renewal, mm-hmm. uh, including creation and creatures and biology and humans yeah. and uh, it, it, it is the pattern of of, of the universe. Mm-hmm. So, and I resonate with that. Um, what's the pushback that you get from this? Like, what, what's the uh, uh, what's the rub that you run up against? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, every day uh, almost, I, I encounter Christians who are are still objecting that. Well, you're too 
interested in material reality. You're mm. you're too interested in um, in you know what's what's happening here, and you need to be more focused on you know the the beyond or the you know or heaven or, or something like that. And um, you know sometimes it's the form of well, you should be instead of trying to engage in questions of technology and transformation, you should be engaged in spreading the gospel, you know, something, <laughs> something like that. And, um, you know, I, I, it goes back to, um, what some people call, you know, like a, a, a short changed gospel. Like you've, you've gotten like a, a tiny kind of window uh, of what's going on here, but you've missed the bigger story. Mm. And for me, you, we can't, tell this this little story of conversion without telling the big story of what are we being converted to mm. what are we doing why are we here what is our actual existence and role and for so long christianity especially in america has just not really focused on that at all that's good that's so good and and, and i think too um we get so narrow in our views you said earlier there was um you know you 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 brought up with the understanding, and I think all of us who may have been brought up in a more conservative environment had similar stories of saying, you know, you drop the Bible in the in the middle of the jungle, and people mm-hmm. would come to the same conclusion. But the reality mm-hmm. is, there's thirty to forty thousand different denominations, and on top of that, you have Catholicism and Orthodoxy, and yeah. you know, so the fact that there are four, let's say forty thousand different interpretations to think that mine is correct is pretty arrogant. Um, you got a one in 40,000 chance, right? right? Um, Those aren't very good odds. Nevertheless, um, laying that all aside, is is there, have you found um, uh, a real freedom in this Mm -hmm. and a growth, a trajectory in your own life of continuing to grow and mature in this rather than a stagnation? And I think that's the, 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 the problem with fundamentalism, in my opinion, is uh, you want to hold on to the fundamentals of the faith. Mm-hmm. And what's very sad to me is that you have somebody who learned something in Sunday school who hasn't grown or matured, mm-hmm. or there is no um, expanding of their understanding mm-hmm. of God, no expanding of their understanding of other faiths and other religions, no expanding of or inclusiveness uh, of what God may be and be about in the world. Yeah. They're still stuck at that same point where they learned in Sunday school. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's sad. Mm-hmm. It's sad because you've got people who are holding on to things where I do believe that we are created and made in, to have a projection of growth, to mm-hmm. have a projection of change, to have a projection of renewal. Mm-hmm. And if we aren't doing that individually, psychologically, spiritually, then I think we become stunted. Yeah. And I don't believe we can fulfill... Um, the, the the humanness that we were created to to fulfill in, in all of its glory. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, I I kind of I I think a lot about some of the historical transitions that we've experienced over the last you know thousand years, and um, uh, Phyllis Tickle is a writer who mm-hmm. kind of lays out a theory about some of the religious transitions we've gone through. And her idea was that every 500 years, we go through this kind of rebuilding process. I call it a reboot, mm-hmm. um, where we rethink everything. And, and in that process, we come to a new idea of what our kind of center of spiritual authority is. Mm. 
And uh, so one of the first ones, you know, 500 years after Christ, more or less, uh, you know, you, you come up with the creeds, mm-hmm. the big kind of um, core creeds of the Christian faith. And then, you know, about 500 years later, the, the Pope kind of emerges in the Catholic Church as the center of authority. And then about 500 years later, after the printing press, you get this idea that we all are going to have a printed Bible and we're all going to... Um, interpret everything around that. And now we're 500 years later and our printing press based society is breaking down right. with the internet. We've got a new printing press and everything's changing again. And, and with the printing press, uh, you got, you had the reformation too. Yep. So that was a, a major shift. Yeah. The, the, the shift of the, the center of authority moves from, um, even, even for Catholics, right. It, it, in a sense, it moves from the idea that we have one kind of group or one person who can hand down the truth to this idea that we all kind of have a responsibility for interpreting the truth ourselves. But the problem is that, um, we quickly run into these tensions because I've got my interpretation of the text. You've got your interpretation mm-hmm. of the text. How are we going to mm-hmm. reconcile those? And in, a lot of times we end up with a race to the bottom mm. where it's like, well, the, the only thing we can all agree on is the most literal flat version of the interpretation that we can come up with, right? right? Like we can't agree on these more kind of developed or spiritual interpretations. And so in many ways, the kind of main mainline interpretation that's prevalent in some parts of American Christianity is far less advanced than yes. the ones that were being offered a thousand yes. or fifteen hundred years ago, and um, and so I think we we've reached this point where we need a new um, source, a new center of. It's been five hundred years. So yeah, that's right. We're <laughs> we're we're due for it, and we need to understand where is our authority coming from? Is it coming from the church? Is it coming from the text? And it's not that those things go away, but it's it's that something else has to be drawing us mm. forward, has mm. to be dri- driving our ability to interpret and so forth. And I think it gets back to what, what you said. It's growth, right? Mm. And um, for too long, we've uh, ig- ignored this big core idea of Christianity, that what we are here to do is to be transformed into the image of Christ, mm. to be transformed into the image of God, and that we, in this... in this process are bringing about this transformation of the cosmos, of the created mm-hmm. order. Mm-hmm. And if we start with that, mm-hmm. then we get, I think, a new ability to um, reconcile our different uh, interpretations, our different opinions. We, we can look at it all through this lens of, well, what, how does this help us move towards the image and the transformation into the image of Christ? And how does that lead to a renewal of our future and the kingdom of God and all that? And when we put that back at the center, which I think it was at the beginning, then we get this ability to um, both grow, but also to let go of some stagnant mm, um, ideas. Good. Yeah, that's really good. And I, I agree with that. Um, I, I, I've run into so many people, and I'm sure you have too, that... Um, I better be careful how I say this. The, 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 there, there's, a, there's a literalism and a literal interpretation of Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Many times from a fundamentalist perspective. Um, excuse me. With that comes also an attitude that there is a supremacy when it comes to Scripture. Mm-hmm. 
and Scripture trumps everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, with if you take that view and carry it further, there are many in this camp, too, that say, therefore, since Scripture trumps everything else and it is literal, mm-hmm. then any other ideology is false mm-hmm. and is to be looked at with you know an eye of 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 you know not really trusting mm-hmm. so they will look at science mm-hmm. and they'll accuse science of being you know uh, this is scientism that yeah. you don't just believe in science you make an ideology ideology about it yeah. they look at philosophy and say well or atheism or whatever it may be and yet I think you can be blind to say, well, biblicism Mm -hmm. is just as much Mm -hmm. um, wrong Mm -hmm. as scientism or atheism or any of the isms that Mm -hmm. we hold on to to say this is supreme above everyone else. Rather saying maybe scripture, Christ, creation, Mm -hmm. science all works together as one. Mm Um, and it should work together as one. And having that view that you're able to engage and say, when Jesus said things like, greater things than these shall you do because mm-hmm. I'm leaving this place and I'm going out of here, mm-hmm. we automatically in a fundamentalist or conservative perspective might think, oh, you know, well, we'll pray real hard and people will get healed or we'll go preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And while I'm not saying those things aren't important, what we forget is we're sitting here in 2019. We have eradicated many diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can fly across the world at any time mm-hmm. we want. We can create this podcast and send it out to millions of people all over the world. Mm-hmm. I can talk to people on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. There's more technology in my iPhone than there's ever been. To me, that's greater things than these that yeah. change you doing. That has... That has brought together and furthered the king. Those things have furthered the kingdom of God in ways that we don't really put that in that context. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I tell a lot of people, you know, um, I have a theological commitment to science. Um, it's not just because science has proven itself to be um, really effective. Um, but it's it's actually that my th- my theology calls me to... Um, to engage with the world and say, okay, what is, you know, what is the truth that's out there that's outside of my context, outside of my framework, outside of my assumptions and, and presumptions. And, um, and, you know, it, go, it goes back to how I understand uh, what we are called to be, what, what human beings are. So, you know, this core idea that we are created in the image of God. And, uh, you know, as Genesis has it, that we are put in the world to cultivate and mm. uplift creation, mm. right? That we, um, you know, we, we talk about uh, in, in Genesis 1, dominion over the created order. And that's supposed to be an imitation of God, who is this creator mm-hmm. who, who calls forth the potential within creation itself and blesses it mm-hmm. and names it and categorizes it. All those things are what we do as science and technology. When we as humans enter the world and, and see creation and call forth its potential and name it and bless it and categorize it and bring new things out of it, we're engaging in a scientific and technological process, that's what it means in a deep way, uh, or it's part of what it means, at least, to be made in the image of God. Mm. And so when Jesus uh, walks on the earth and he does all these things and he heals people and, and all this kind of stuff, and then he says, you know, 
this great, you know, you're going to do this and much, much more, right? Mm. He is saying these, all these things, all these things I'm doing are part of what it means to be human, Mm. part of what it means to be uh, in the world as, you know, a created being is that it is now your responsibility to help bring peace and healing and life. Mm. And everything he does is uh, exemplifies this idea, even uh, calming the storm, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's really like bringing peace mm-hmm. to the created order, and that's how sure. they understand it and interpret it. So, yeah, how do we do that, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the core, um, and those things get back to these these core ideas of of faith, hope, and love, really, which is you know the core of how we engage the world. And the Apostle Paul, he, you know, he's talking to people who are speaking in tongues and, you know, getting spiritual revelations and all this kind of stuff. And he says, that stuff is great, but ultimately the core thing is faith, hope, and love, Mm. your engagement with those things. And everything else will fall away. And the Bible comes out of those revelations, right? Everything else is secondary to this calling to engage faith, hope, and love in your relationships in the mm. world, all this kind of stuff. That's great. That's great. So, so then to take that to take that worldview, um, where does it put you? Meaning, does it take you out of traditional Christianity? Does mm. it put you deeper into it? Mm. Does it put you in contrast to it? Does it? I know I'm asking a loaded question because. Again, like I said earlier, there are many, many different interpretations. And when you say Christianity, that's a huge yeah. spectrum. But where, where, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself on the inside of it going deeper? Do you find yourself on the outside going further away? Mm. Well, yeah. So I, you know, I, I think um, you think about Jesus, you know, in the Gospels, who is engaging in his tradition, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, he, he's engaging in all these debates within his tradition and he's arguing back and forth. And I think he's presenting himself and he's being presented as um, someone who is deeply, deeply centered in this tradition, Mm. but it's putting him in conflict with so many kind of arbiters of this tradition, right? Like everybody who's saying, and, but he's saying, no, no, no. If you understand what's really going on at the core of this tradition, this is where, what right. it is, right? And I, it was pretty radical too, because yeah. he, he kept saying, um, "You say this, but I say this. Moses right. says this, but right. I say this. Yeah. Your 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 forefathers say this, but I say this." He yeah. was it was pretty radical the things he was yeah. saying. Yeah, and at the same time, he says, um, "You search the scriptures, thinking you have you know found some wisdom, but they were pointing to this, mm-hmm. right? They were pointing to what I'm doing right here, and." Um, and so this is the thing for me is like, the more we explore this stuff, the more we investigate, the more we see that the core of our Christian tradition is much deeper and more powerful, um, than people have let it be. Right. Absolutely. And so the arbiters of that tradition are then, uh, often the ones in conflict with the heart of the tradition. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself, you know, feeling like I'm, you know, I'm deeply, uh, deeply, deeply Christian, deeply dedicated to it. Um, but so many of the kind of mainstream interpretations of it now seem like they are really outside of what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I resonate with that. And it, and sometimes it's hard to explain that, um, in the context of 
of that message. Mm-hmm. And so um, l- let's shift gears slightly. Um, what do you, you talk a lot about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this transhumanist perspective and in this biblical uh, uh, interpretation of, of a better place and our job of doing greater things mm-hmm. and pushing forward for an added, uh, uh, a world of, of transformation mm-hmm. and restoration, we get to artificial intelligence, okay? Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting, depending on who you listen and who you read, that there's, there's, there's so much cultural stuff going on here that you have to peel that back. Yeah. Because in the, in the West, especially as Americans, we look at artificial intelligence and immediately we go to dark places. Mm-hmm. And we say, you know, we've got movies and we've got dystopian universes right. and it makes for great uh, entertainment, right? Yeah. It's like... The, the the robots take over the world and destroy us, and you got yeah. War of the World, and you've got yeah. the Terminator, and on and on it goes, right? But then you go to the East, and you go to Asia, you go mm. to China, you go to Korea, mm-hmm. and that's not their view of mm. robotics and artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. It's it's a happy place. It's yeah. like these are good, and they're going. To, we're going to live in harmony together, and yeah. we're going to help each other. Um, they, it, it, I think. I personally interpret that as they have a much more communal view of mm. society. They have it's like what do we do for the whole? What is it going to do for us rather than as Americans and as Westerners many mm. times it's we're so individualistic. Mm-hmm. The first thing we think of is how is it going to impede my freedom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. versus how is it going to make us all yeah. better and benefit from it? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, that, that's a really interesting point, the kind of cultural differences. It, it brings to mind kind of the, you know, the happy dragon versus the yeah. evil dragon, right? right. Like, um, and, and so you It's get, the sign of the Chinese New Year, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so whereas like our stories in the West are all about, you know, killing the dragon and, you know, it's, so there's some really interesting, um, you know, kind of tension between those two ideas. And I think... Um, yeah, when you watch these dystopian things or the Terminator or whatever, it's really interesting to think about what, what is this saying about us? What is it saying about our, um, our kind of self-concept? And the idea that maybe like if we were to create a super intelligence, that the most intelligent thing it could do would be to wipe us out. Like, you know, th- this idea, it, it almost, it just embodies this kind of really um, really conflicted idea about our own existence, even, and um, so you know, I think what it what it points to is that we haven't figured out how to um, really conceptualize a positive future that <laughs> that involves everybody and everything. And because we struggle with that, we're stuck in these dystopias. We're stuck in these dystopian mm. stories, and um, and AI, uh, you know, brings up. Um, all these same questions, you know, the questions we've been asking ourselves for thousands of years, like it really kind of puts them front and center, but now it puts them front and center as um, almost a research project, right? Like what are we going to, you know, what are we going to spend the next billion dollars on? And it, it kind of comes down to our answer to like, how do we read these stories? Mm -hmm. How do we think about them? And so you get people like Elon Musk who are very concerned um, that AI is going to, you know, basically, we're unleashing demons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, philosopher Nick Bostrom out of Oxford, um, he's kind of pursuing the same idea. Um, one of the most um, 
well-funded philosophy uh, programs in history at Oxford is to research um, AI risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you've got other people like Ray Kurzweil at Google mm-hmm. who are looking to AI to essentially save the world, mm-hmm. right? It's going to save the world. It's going to cure all our diseases, all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I think um, to a large extent, we need to come back to this idea of what does it mean to bring forth life at all? Mm. And, you know, every time we bring a new life into existence, it's a huge risk. You know, the, a, a baby born today could be the next Hitler or it could be the next, you know, um, scientist who cures cancer. Everything, every life is a risk. So what do we do? How do we, how do we approach that risk as a society? Do we run from it? Do, mm. do we live in terror of it? Um, I think the healthiest thing that humans have ever figured out how to do is to engage in relationship. Mm. Right, we don't. We try not to raise children in isolation. We raise them around other people so that they can learn mm-hmm. how to relate and they can learn relational values. And I think of all the different proposals that are being put out for how to protect ourselves against AI risk. You know, there a lot of them are like, let's let's figure out how to cage an AI or slave an AI. You know, and I'm like, no, this is a disastrous like right. scenario. Why don't we figure out how to engage them in relationship? Mm, that's good. That's good. Um, and, I, and, and I know we don't have time to explore the depths of this, and maybe there's a part two to this at another time. But I, I have said for, the, for several years, and, and I, I think you'll resonate with this, that I don't believe that modern Christianity and the church is, is conveniently and um, readily prepared to address theological issues. Mm that AI are going to pose mm. in the very near future. Mm-hmm. Because depending on where you are and how much you study it and what you believe, um, this whole idea of the singularity, this whole idea of, of duplicating the human brain, mm. you know, guys like Ray Kurzweil says we're 10 to 15 years away. Others say we're 25 to 30. Some say we're as close as five years away. Um, that, that is, it's going to be an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. When you have artificial intelligence uh, caring for you know your elderly parent yeah. and becoming their companion, yeah. when you have you know the human brain being duplicated in almost every way into an entity that has uh, potentially skin grown on it on the, in a lab mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and is and is duplicated in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, as to human being, what are your thoughts on like what are some potential things that need to be explored when it comes to that? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest question is um, human identity, and you touched on a couple of, of ones there. Like, you know, if we bring an AI into existence that's intelligent and creative like we are, how do we treat it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's individual identity. If we can create, you know, brain scans of each other, is that us or is it something different? You know, and um, increasingly, uh, I, if I don't know if you've seen the movie Her a few mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. so um, you know, there's uh, in the in the movie there's there's these AIs and they um, they get together and they resurrect 
Allen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. They create a replica of Allen Ginsberg um, so that they can talk to him and you know engage him. And we're going to see more and more stuff like that, right? Where we're going to go through the you know the writings of Shakespeare or the writings of whoever, and we're going to try to pull out a personality and embody it, and then talk to it. Mm. And how do we think about those things? You know, mm-hmm. how do we think about that when um, you know? It, uh, if you use your phone right now and it gives you like kind of autocomplete suggestions, you know, so mm-hmm. my wife will text me and then the phone will offer me a thing I can say back. Well, at some point, does it just get to, you know, where I'm just pressing a button, you know, to, to say whatever it's generated for me. And what if we're both doing that? Right. And then after, what if, what if the phone becomes so kind of conformed to my personality that it already knows what I'm going to say in a real way. And then maybe even when I'm um, out of touch, you know, I'm traveling in a foreign country and my wife can't reach me. Maybe she can still converse with this and then like I can be updated later. And at which point has, you know, my identity kind of moved out of myself mm-hmm. into something sure. else. And all these questions are coming and they're coming in ways that I, you know, I'm not even probably capable of imagining. Um, but it's really going to change our ideas about the boundaries of identity. It's going to challenge that in a deep, deep way, mm-hmm. and we're going to struggle with that, uh, I think, unless we get kind of a healthier way to approach many of these questions. Yeah, and, and I think at the core, one of the things that, that I've said for, for a long time is that I think we, I know I did for a long time until probably about eight years ago, really look at technology in this kind of binary view that's that that was equal to this sacred secular kind of mm. divide mm-hmm. you know and you say even today when you google or you try to look up like a a christian worldview or a theological view of technology it always starts with this idea well it's just a tool mm. and how you use that tool mm. And I think that is such a anti a, a a non-Christian way of mm-hmm. looking at, at at matter and technology yeah. because what you're saying is it's simply utilitarian. Yeah. And yet, when the 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 phone that you hold in your hand, and right now I'm holding an iPhone, every piece of of technology, every piece, of, every mineral, every piece of metal, everything it's made of, was given to us in creation. Yeah. And it exists in this created order that a divine, intelligent creator has made. Yeah. And we then partnered with him in his image to co-create and to make this thing. Yeah. And so to, to look at it and say, well, it's just a tool, right. really takes away, I, I'm not going to say the divinity of it, but the beauty and the integration of, of God in all things, yeah. where he's actually saying, no, this is more than just a, a tool that you throw away. Right. This is actually... Uh, something that you have co-created with me because I gave you these things. I gave you these minerals that do this, that can, these, these capacitors that could, you know, take this heat. And over time you figured these things out, just like someone millions of years ago in a cave figured that you could make fire. Yeah. Um, and we went from there. Yeah. And who knows what it's going to be 30, 40, a hundred years from now. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think we're becoming aware now in a deeper way that um, that we can't escape the role of values in this. When we engage in scientific investigation, we are 
we are deeply mixing our values into what we discover. And, you know, if you look at like the classification systems of animals and plants and all this kind of stuff, ultimately that's a value. Uh, You know, it's a system of what we think is important, Mm. right? And so everything we do, shaping an iPhone is incredibly value laden. Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're, we're looking at something that exists in the world. We're saying, ah, I see what you can do. You can take this form, Mm -hmm. right? And in that, we are both affirming it and also bringing ourselves into it, right? And so to to say, well, it's just a tool is to really, really deeply kind of devalue what we've done and what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, but we we see this all the time. I, I often talk about you know that that there's kind of two big cultural reactions, particularly in churches. One is uh, reactionism, uh, and the other is consumerism. And the, and there's this idea that we see a new technology come out, we're going to react to it and say, "Oh, that's bad. It's new. Mm-hmm. I don't like it." Or we're going to see it and we say, mm-hmm. "Oh, this is a good fashion item. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have the you know it latest. An, it becomes an idol. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It becomes like uh, here's you know the it's latest gadget. You yeah. know, and and we're not doing we're not engaging with it in a transformative way. We're not using mm-hmm. it uh, to help the flourishing of life. We're just kind of keeping ourselves ahead of the the game, right? And that's um, yeah, as you said, I think this is deeply, deeply insufficiently Christian. It's mm-hmm. not sacred. It's not a spiritual way of approaching technology because technology ultimately as part of matter as part of our our creative work is a spiritual thing and should be treated that way that's good how how does this way of thinking and and where you are on your path how does this um influence and these looking through life of these lenses how do you come back around we're going to come back around full circle now how does it influence your interpretation of reading scripture Mm -hmm. and you know what does it look like to say i'm i look at the world through i'm a christian transhumanist and Mm -hmm. i believe in all these things this is where i am on my walk in my journey in my life in my path what does that look like for you is it is it unique and different do you like take off your transhumanist hat and put on (laughs) your christian hat and say okay now i'm going to read the bible what is that what is the practicality of that well um i think when you you know, kind of take as your as your core this idea uh, that you know it's it's um, we're pursuing life, right? Mm-hmm. We're pursuing the flourishing of life. We're pursuing the the kingdom of heaven. Um, we're pursuing these things. Everything you read um, becomes uh, you know enlightened through that lens, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and you realize um, that. You know what? What people were were doing and writing these things down um, was, in in essence, like taking a leap forward, right? Taking a visionary leap to try to imagine and portray that kind of future, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's you know. So I read through that lens of of um, you know maybe a very practical way. I say you know okay, when I'm reading a text, what did it mean to the person who wrote it? Mm. What does it mean? What did it mean to the person who copied it? What did it mean to the the groups of of people who spread it and then who collected it into books? What does it mean um, to the people who decided that this is scripture? And what will it mean in the far future when Mm. people read this? And if you can find an interpretation that strings all those people, then you found something that. 
is compelling and life-giving. Because mm-hmm. if I say, well, somebody's going to read this in the far future, what's it going to mean to them? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to assume that we make it into the future, right? Like right. That, we're, that this has somehow helped us to survive to that next level. Mm-hmm. And I understand that the people who wrote it back in the past were also doing the same thing. And so life is at the core of it. And in mm-hmm. fact, you know, that's what we mean, I think, when we say that it's inspired, is that it's coming from the spirit that gives life. Right. And it is life-sustaining. Mm-hmm. And so there are so many potential interpretations that are destructive and take away from life. And I would say those are, those are wrong, and they are, uh, they are outside of the idea that this is inspired, right? Mm-hmm. If we say this is inspired of God, it has to be giving life and bringing mm-hmm. life into being. That's so good. That's so good. And there's a freedom in that, mm-hmm. right? There's a freedom in that because you're not stuck in a well, this is the traditional interpretation, mm-hmm. and if I see or I feel or I, like you said, look down the road 100 years or if I look back in the past 1,000 years and I might f- see something different, mm-hmm. I'm not threatened by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty, I think, of, of reading Scripture in that light. And mm-hmm. ultimately, um, you know, that's how Jesus looked mm-hmm. at it and read it um, and was able to say, Things that were revolutionary and transformational, but also timeless. Yeah, uh, and they didn't always. He didn't always fit in the boxes that people had figured out. Well, this is the correct interpretation, right? And yet, he, here we here we are sitting here over two thousand years, still talking about it. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and he goes back to texts that you know. In some of his arguments with people, he goes back to texts that. Um, if you look at it in a kind of literal way, you're like, yeah, that's not what it was saying. You know, like you say, you look at Jesus and Paul and how they interpret these texts and it doesn't fit kind of our literalistic framework, right? But what Jesus is seeing in that them is that these texts are speaking and pointing forward to life, mm-hmm. right? And they're showing us how to get life. And so, um, you know, he talks about, you know, God is... Um, you know, the people are challenging him on the idea of resurrection, and he says, "You know, well, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, mm. but of the living, mm. right?" And so, for Jesus, that's the core idea. And how you, you know, square that with kind of a, a literalistic lens or whatever is secondary to the fact that for Jesus, God is the God of the living. Mm. That's good, and that that's a truth that transcends all time mm. times and cultures, right? Mm-hmm. And it and it means potentially different things and has different nuances to different times and cultures. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's good, man. This has been great. I could I could go on and talk for another <laughs> hour. Um, how do people learn more? Because you know, there's so many questions I'm sure people have. But yeah. how do they get in touch with you? What are you doing? Do you have a website? Talk yeah. about how they get in touch with you. Yeah. So um, you know where I kind of explore my interpretation of of scripture and of Christianity and all these things. I have a website, micahredding.com, and um, I, I try to write there, you know, exploring this idea that Christianity is ultimately life-giving and that that's the way that we look at it. Um, and then christiantranshumanism.org is the Christian Transhumanist Association, so that's kind of the connection with the larger community and and uh, of people exploring these kinds of questions on the, you know, edges of AI and transhumanism and all this kind of stuff. And that's also, you can find uh, there the Christian Transhumanist Podcast, where, you know, we try to interview, bringing together people who are typically not in the same kind of uh, media, right? Uh, people on, on these edges 
edges of, of um, science and technology and people on these edges of theology. I'm trying to bring that together. So, yeah, christiantranshumanism.org, micahredding.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and, yeah, that's, uh, that's where people can find me. So before we go, can you give um, listeners maybe some, what are some primers of, of authors in the past, the present, mm-hmm. that kind of carry the same stream of thought? You know, there mm-hmm. might be some people listening going, wow, this is amazing, or this is weird, or this guy's mm-hmm. out in left field. You aren't the only one. You, you yeah. come behind a long stream of thinkers who, who kind of go in this vein. Can you give people maybe yeah. some ideas of some things they could read or look up? Yeah, so you know, it, it always depends on kind of where people are at and where they're coming from. Um, if you're from a kind of fundamentalist background like I am, and you know, grow up thinking like we're just supposed to get to heaven and not do anything on earth, I would recommend reading N.T. Wright. Um, Surprised by Hope is a great uh, place to jump into that. He's a leading New Testament scholar and theologian. Um, if you want to go a little bit deeper into how the real, the whole biblical story is about this and about calling humanity into participation. Um, I would go to something like Richard Middleton. Uh, he's a scholar that N.T. Wright refers to, and, and he does incredible work on this stuff. Um, and then if you want to understand how this can kind of connect with um, you know, our technology and science and all this kind of stuff, I would recommend maybe reading something from Teilhard de Chardin. Mm. And this is a, um, a Jesuit priest who is also a, a scientist in the 1930s through the 50s trying to reconcile these things. And um, his work to reconcile them led him to anticipate all these ideas like the internet and the singularity mm-hmm. and all this. Um, and so uh, just a book like The Phenomenon of Man, which um, w- was only published after his, after his death, that actually... Um, is one of the influential works that kind of crossed over and led to the existence of secular transhumanism in the first place. Mm. So there's this deep kind of religious history Mm. um, that's behind a lot of this. That would be probably where I would start for most people. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and doing this. We're going to have to do it again soon because I want to get deeper into artificial intelligence. There's lots of good things there. Thank you, Micah, for your time. And I thank you for what you're doing. And I hope people will connect with what you're doing and learn more. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. 